This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. This is the Science Podcast for December 22nd, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. This is our last episode of the year, and we get to hear what happens when you make a cryptocurrency legal tender. Researcher Deanna Van Patten joins me to discuss what happened after El Salvador adopted Bitcoin in 2021. But first, the hunt for the elusive Majorana fermion particle with freelance science writer Zach Savitsky. We talk about why so many think something like the Majorana is the best bet for a functional quantum computer. Zach also tells the mysterious tale of the disappearance of the particle's namesake, Ettore Majorana. Reclusive and disaffected, physicist Ettore Majorana liked to work in the shadows. But after his friend Emilio Segre dragged him into Enrico Fermi's elite Roman physics club in the late 1920s, Majorana's stature in atomic physics quickly grew. His mostly unpublished premonitions were eerily prescient. Among others, he famously intuited the existence of the neutron from prior experiments. And in 1937, he conjured up a completely new kind of particle. Physicists had learned that every fundamental particle seems to have an antimatter counterpart an idea that Segre would later earn a Nobel Prize for verifying. Majorana realized the equation that leads to this duality could also describe a single particle with identical matter and antimatter personas, making it prone to annihilate itself. This hypothetical particle became known as the Majorana fermion. Hello, Zach. Welcome back to the Science Podcast. I guess my first question is, how much do you think we need to understand about quantum physics to understand the story? I think it depends on which part of the story you want to understand. <laughs> but we certainly don't need to do a whole crash course right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really do feel like the themes and the characters and the sequence of events can almost be abstracted away from the physics. And it's still a really interesting story. But I think we should start with 
What is a Majorana fermion? Ettore Majorana proposed this idea that there could exist a particle that was its own antiparticle. And that has caught on as with the moniker Majorana fermion. What happens when you bring like an electron and a positron together is that they annihilate. And if you were to bring two Majorana fermions together because they are their own antiparticle, they would annihilate as well. We're talking about Majorana and his titular fermion today because millions of dollars and decades of time have been spent searching for either Majorana fermions or something very similar to them. Researchers and industry are particularly interested in using something Majorana-like to form the basis of a quantum computer. Yeah, so I think one thing to emphasize throughout this is that what they're trying to make in the quantum computer is like an equivalent of the Majorana fermion, but it's it's not a fundamental particle in the way that a Majorana particle would be. And that is a really important distinction because if Majorana fermions do exist in nature as like elementary particles, they could not form the basis of a computer. Okay, so we'll just call them Majoranas from here on out, and that's going to denote um, something like a Majorana fermion, but not exactly that fundamental particle. Okay, let's get into quantum computing now. The idea for building a quantum computer has been around for decades. And the general concept is that rather than relying on little electrical switches called transistors to encode zeros and ones as information, which is how the basis of all modern computing works, you could encode those zeros and ones in different properties of subatomic objects. So that could be an atom or an electron, and the thing that you're encoding it could be a property like its spin or its polarity. That allows you to harness these weird quantum laws to, in principle at least, do computations in a fundamentally different way. In order for a quantum computer to do the computation, you need to have a bunch of these qubits that are entangled with each other, which is this weird quantum phenomenon in which Different particles that are separated in space can share properties. That's really useful for doing these computations sort of simultaneously. But the problem is that those particles can also entangle with the environment around them. And that when that happens, you mess up the computation. And so what you want to do is have entanglement between the qubits, but not entanglement between the qubits and the rest of the world. Okay. And this is where we learn that entanglement is something like fire. One of my sources, physicist Charlie Marcus, has a really nice way of describing this. He talks about it as akin to learning to control fire. Humans, when we first started using fire, there was this problem that the fire could light up the entire forest. So it was really a trial and error process of learning to control fire enough to harness its effects, but not let it get out of control so that it spreads and ruins everything. And that's really the same process that we're trying to do here with quantum computers. We want to maintain and preserve and utilize entanglement without letting it get out of hand. One of the key things you need to know about this field, about trying to use Majoranas to control entanglement and make a quantum computer, is that it's not just academics toiling away. There are a lot of power players from industry hunting for Majoranas. Corporations and governments have been understandably really interested in the prospect of building a quantum computer. 
the one thing we're pretty sure that the quantum computer could do is break modern cryptography. That has generated a lot of like commercial and national interest in making these things work. And in the early 2000s, Microsoft, I guess, caught wind of this proposal to build a topological quantum computer, a quantum computer based on Majorana's. They essentially bought all in. They established a whole research arm that has been dedicated to making a topological quantum computer a reality. With that interest and funding has come a lot of other private interests and has sort of muddled the waters between academic and corporate goals. One of your sources said, you know, you need thousands, millions of qubits, but when you put any few of them together, error goes up. Is that kind of the state of the business now? Yeah, that's the big holdup with like the current iteration of quantum computers is that they're not what they call fault tolerant. What you want is a computer where the more qubits that you add, the more powerful it becomes, the more computations it can do, the faster. But right now we're at a point where the more qubits you add to an array, the worse your errors get. The way that traditional computers get around this problem is by redundancy. If you have three bits that are recording the same information and one of them flips, then you know that the answer was probably what the other two have. It works pretty well for normal computers, but for quantum computers, that becomes a lot more difficult and essentially impossible because of this weird rule of quantum mechanics where you can't exactly clone a quantum state. So you can't just build in redundant qubits. Yeah. And Majorana is going to help with that. In theory, if we could get the Majoranas to work as qubits, you shouldn't have the same problem. The errors shouldn't skyrocket in the same way because of the way that their information is encoded. What about the Majorana method is so compelling? As one of my sources, Shankara Sharma, puts it, you can think of the effort to build a quantum computer like climbing Mount Everest. The traditional routes toward building qubits have made it really far. They've trekked hundreds of miles already, but they started in California. Whereas this Majorana approach has made zero steps toward, or very few steps <laughs> toward climbing the mountain, but they started at base camp. And so if they are able to actually follow through and produce functional logical qubits and eventually build a computer out of them, they have fewer hurdles to overcome than the other route does because of the way that they're more protected from errors and shielding themselves from fire than the other groups are. Months after proposing his particle, the 31-year-old Ettore Majorana withdrew a large sum from his bank account, took a boat across the Tyrrhenian Sea, and vanished. To this day, nobody's sure what happened to him, and the jury is also still out on whether his particle exists. Before Ettore Majorana vanished in 1938, he sent a series of cryptic messages to his family and colleagues about his impending sudden disappearance, leading many to suspect he'd taken his own life. But over the following years, purported sightings of Majorana multiplied, as a beggar in Naples, a monk in Calabria, and a vagabond in South America. The search for the ghost of his particle has been similarly confounded by imposters. We really haven't gotten into the specifics of why Majoranas might be so helpful. What's different about them, you know, than these other approaches that people have tried in the past or are still trying uh, for using different things as qubits? 
There's another weird thing about quantum mechanics in which when you have electrons in a certain system, so we're talking about, for the most part, flat surfaces in a high magnetic field, you can get electrons to pair up with spaces where there aren't electrons, something called a hole, and they can form this what's called a quasi-particle, where it looks as though the electron is in two different places at once. They call these anions for their ability to do seemingly anything. And they're essentially like fractional charges of electrons. And there's a certain subset of these fractional charges that can do this really weird thing that could be really helpful for quantum computing. And they have this property where if you move multiple of them around each other, it changes their shared state. What it allows you to do is essentially tie knots in the histories of these particles. A good way to think about this is anions as like balls on the table. And beneath them, there are like strings hanging down underneath the table. And when you move these particles around each other, like do the, the old shell and cup game, the strings get knotted underneath the table. And you can use those knots as a way to encode different numbers and information. How are the anions, these partially charged electron, whole quasi-particle things, how are they related to Majoranos? The simplest one of these like class of anions that can do this weird braiding thing is in a sense related to Majorana fermions. And the reason is that the most basic way to construct something that can play this weird electron game is to create a quasi-particle that is, you can think of it as like, it's 50% electron, 50% hole. Okay. So the braiding would like help with the operations that the quantum computer would be able to do? Yes. Yeah, so the braiding is the operations that the quantum computer is doing. So rather than encoding zeros in ones through the like spin of an electron, for example, as, as some classes of qubits work, we're talking about encoding information in the way that these Majoranas are wrapped around each other in space. Okay, so I'm just going to point out here that that's why it's called topological computing, because you're talking about the shape of something in space. But Zach, I have a question. Have researchers been able to braid these Majoranas? It depends a bit on who you ask. <laughs> I think the general consensus is no. So this question has been the subject of great debate for like two decades now. Basically, the real controversy over this stems from the idea that we're not exactly sure what these things would look like, and we're therefore not exactly sure what signals they would produce, or if those signals are unique to the thing that we're actually looking for. So that has been the, the lingering struggle. In 2011, Rome's public prosecutor's office reopened its investigation into Ettore Majorana's disappearance. Detectives had come across an alleged photograph of Majorana from 1955 in Venezuela, where he had supposedly been living under the alias Mr. Beanie. They attempted to match the man's facial structure to an old photo of Majorana and concluded that he had run away to South America, perhaps because he foresaw how his colleagues' work on atomic energy could lead to nuclear weapons. Content with the explanation, the prosecutor's office officially closed the case in 2015. But many were left dissatisfied. Francesco Guerra, a physicist at the University of Rome who continues to investigate the case, says the conclusion was completely ridiculous. 
It's been decades, and theorists have come up with benchmarks or hallmarks that would indicate to someone, you know, trying something in the lab that you found a Majorana. Then you'd publish on that and say, here, we've met these benchmarks. But it turns out something else could have also met that benchmark or those peaks are not unique to Majoranas. And so experimentalists go back to the bench, say we've met a new definition from theorists, so on and so forth. Things are retracted. People don't believe each other. The state of the field is basically no one will believe that you have Majoranas until you've built a quantum computer from them. But despite all these bumps, and it's been years, there's still hope out there. There are multiple avenues of research that people have been pursuing to get to this Majorana. Each of them thinks at least that they're at sort of a turning point and that they're close to having a breakthrough. The main technique that people have been using to get the Majorana, which is the strategy that Microsoft has really honed in on, is creating them at the ends of these really thin, small wires. A few months ago, Microsoft put out a paper that they believe is really strong evidence that they have Majoranas there, although people have their doubts. And the next step is for them to make a qubit out of it. And so they're sort of, in their minds, on the verge of showing that this thing has potential. But there's doubt. There's always doubt. <laughs> so there's another approach that has emerged in the past few years. Basically, it's all thanks to these researchers who have figured out that graphene, which is basically the, the graphite that makes up your pencil lead, you can extract a single atom thick layer of that graphite, which is called graphene, and that you can turn that graphene into structures that seem to be really conducive for creating these quasi-particles. That has gotten a lot of people really excited because it's a totally new approach. It faces its own challenges, but there are at least new challenges. And they seem to be making rapid progress with this. Those researchers are pretty confident that they can get to a qubit without any major miracles happening in the next few years, which is exciting. One of the things that comes up a lot in your story is the fact that industry got involved, a lot of money got involved, and the field maybe wouldn't have gotten as far as it did without that involvement. But not everyone thinks that it's been good news or it's been all positive. Totally. Yeah. One of the researchers I talked to described this as a sort of double-edged sword because there has certainly been an influx of funding to do this kind of research. People made the claim that Microsoft's involvement alone made this study of topological materials worthy of pursuing and like a household name in the field. That certainly had a positive effect on getting people excited about this and believing that there's potential in it. However, just the nature of having a corporation inside of a field that would otherwise be largely academic is that they have different interests here. They have different needs for protecting their information and some of the information that might otherwise be peer-reviewed and open access has been kept behind closed doors. People also often note that it's not just the presence of Microsoft. First off, there are many other large and small corporate entities that are involved in this. Can't forget Google. Google's here as well. There's a huge number of startup companies, smaller tech companies that are also involved in this. So it's definitely not just a Microsoft thing. Also, people often point to other factors that are influencing the sort of rush to claim Majorana detections, including the pressure from high-impact journals such as Science, 
We've been hearing a lot about the hunt for the missing physicist, Atori Marijuana. One of the things that came up in your interviews, though, is that, you know, basically Charlie Marcus has this opposition to calling this a hunt for Majoranas. Why shouldn't we be calling this a hunt? Charlie's point here was that one of the big issues, like the overarching issue with this field, is that people have been treating this as though it's a manhunt. And that one day we'll just wake up and we're going to find Ettoria Majorana's corpse at the bottom of the ocean. We're going to say, Majorana Zero Modes exist and they're right here and now I can make a computer with them. And his point was that that's not how experimental physics works. I think a lot of people agree that there's not just going to be one moment where the whole community agrees, we've done it, we found Majorana. Rather, there will be this iterative process where through various experiments and replication through other labs, that the community will come to a consensus that this is beyond reasonable doubt existence of Majorana. And then we will slowly go along the road of turning that quasi-particle into a computer. Over the years, accounts of Vittoria Majorana's disappearance have degraded into baseless conspiracies and fictional spin-offs featuring alien abductions and time travel machines. But Guerra and Nadia Roboti, a historian of physics at the University of Genoa, think that the truth is out there. They have uncovered new documents from government, religious, and familial archives that seem to reference Majorana's death about a year after his disappearance. Guerra and Roboti still do not know where or how Majorana died, but they think his descendants are concealing documents that would shed more light. And three years ago, they flew to UC Berkeley to visit the archive of Emilio Segre, the physicist whose friendship with Majorana soured in the years before his disappearance. The researchers came across a folder that, per Segre's instructions, cannot be opened until the year 2057. Zach Savitsky is a freelance science writer. The music on the segment is by Wen Koi Wen. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, a look at El Salvador's adoption of a cryptocurrency with researcher Deanna Van Patten. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. In 2021, El Salvador became the first country to make a cryptocurrency legal tender, Bitcoin in this case. Basically, this means the government and all businesses in the country must accept Bitcoin as payment. There were several motivations for this, but a big one was that a large percentage of the people in El Salvador do not have bank accounts, so it's not easy to access electronic money. It's been a few years, and Deanna Van Patten and colleagues have published a study in science that took a look into how cryptocurrency has been taken up in the country and why people have adopted it or not. Hi, Deanna. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hello, Sarah. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, sure. So up until this point, we really don't know how cryptocurrency could be incorporated or might be incorporated 
into an economy as a currency, as a medium of exchange. People might use it to buy things or pay debts or store money. But how this integration might happen is kind of the big question. Yes. And there are some hypotheses as to why it is that crypto has not been uh, used as a medium of exchange. One of them is that there's a, something that we call the coordination fit, meaning that you don't use it because you don't believe that other people are going to accept it. Another one is that there are relatively large fees in order to conduct transactions in crypto. And so the feeling is that, oh, if these uh, fees were lower, maybe it would be used as a medium of exchange. So you're saying there's some hypotheses about why it's not accepted. Yes. And one is that people don't think everybody else has it. People think that it's too costly. Yes. And, and finally, people claim that another reason why crypto is not being widely accepted is that governments do not accept it to pay for taxes. El Salvador or the government of El Salvador is trying to do away with some of these barriers to entry, which may encourage the citizens to adopt cryptocurrency. This could also help researchers understand which of these elements is important as a barrier. So you described that now Bitcoin is legal tender. So in some sense, the government is solving this coordination issue because it is saying, by law, now everyone has to accept it for transactions. Moreover, the government is accepting it to pay for taxes. And then finally, the government was subsidizing all the transaction fees associated with paying in crypto. And so, like, if there was a chance for Bitcoin to be used as a medium of exchange, this kind of set up a nice opportunity for that to happen. We're talking about cryptocurrency, which I guess people have a general sense what that is. But could we just do a really quick, what is cryptocurrency primer here? A cryptocurrency is going to be a digital currency. What defines a digital currency as crypto in particular is that transactions are verified and recorded in a decentralized system as opposed to a centralized authority. So I spend money all the time, like with my card, through my bank, and there's a place there that records, you know, our transactions. But that's different than crypto. What's the difference? All transactions that you do are being recorded by your bank, but in the background, you're using dollars. Okay. So what are some of the reasons that El Salvador decided that it would be a good idea to incorporate cryptocurrency as a legal tender? When the policy was announced, the official stance of the government was that it would generate jobs, provide financial inclusion, and facilitate sending remittances. This last part is important in the context of El Salvador. El Salvador is a dollarized country where remittances are a very large percentage of GDP. What's a remittance? Suppose someone migrates from El Salvador to the United States. This is the most popular destination for Salvadoran migrants. They send money back to their families in El Salvador, and that money is called remittances. Usually, you would have to use a service that is going to charge a fee. And so sending it in Bitcoin could potentially avoid some of the fees or delays associated with sending remittances, particularly if the government is subsidizing the fees. What do they do to make this easy for people to encourage the use of Bitcoin to, you know, launch it out into the country? The government also launched an app called Chivo Wallet. Chivo means cool in, <laughs> in El Salvador. This was a way to facilitate take-up. People would be able to conduct transactions both in Bitcoin and in dollars with subsidized fees if they downloaded the app. 
they also gave a big incentive for people to download this particular app. Anyone who downloaded the app would get a $30 bonus in Bitcoin just because they, they downloaded it, which doesn't sound like a lot, but because El Salvador has a GDP that is a much lower than the United States, GDP per capita is about $4,000 a year, $30 represents almost four daily minimum wages. So a, a big incentive uh, in order to download the app. Okay, so they have these incentives in place and everybody's supposed to be able to take this as payment and you're supposed to be able to pay your debts with it or taxes and get remittances. How did it do? What was usage like? Were people buying things with cryptocurrency or paying their taxes? Yeah, so that was uh, the big question. We found a challenge, which was that the government revealed only selected information, most of it through the president's Twitter account. And so, for example, the president would claim that more than 2 million Salvadorians were actively using the app and that it was a big success. However, there was no kind of more systematic, reliable data in order to assess if that was actually true. And so our solution was to conduct our own survey, collect the data ourselves, and we conducted a nationally representative face-to-face -face survey. We also collected information on transactions of Chivo from the blockchain. The blockchain is a public ledger that records transactions in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Was the, the Bitcoin ledger able to tell you about every single transaction that happened with the app? No. So this app that I described, that uh, Chivo wallet, which was launched by the government, is a non-custodial wallet, which means that you do not have the key to your Bitcoin. So the government kind of uh, does these transactions in uh, Bitcoin within the app, but this is not something that is being really recorded in the public ledger. And so the transactions that are going to be recorded in the public ledger have to do with, for example, a person that has a different wallet and that is sending you Bitcoin into your Chivo wallet. So if, if tourists go to El Salvador or if there are remittances going on from people that have different wallets in the U.S. to their relatives in El Salvador that have Chivo wallet, that would be recorded. Okay. But does it give you some insight into how often people are using it for those purposes, at least? Yes. And, and it will also allow us to further validate the survey. Also, like Chivo wallet as a whole conducts transactions in order to like exchange Bitcoin for dollars, for example. So we can see roughly what is the volume of transactions in Chiu as a whole. What did you find was the uptake of Bitcoin by people in El Salvador? Were they likely to use it? Did many people do it? Or was it, you know, a little bit of a, of a dud? So according to statements by the president, like almost everyone was already using Chivo. So like starter was to say, okay, do you know uh, that Chivo exists? And actually only about 68% of people in El Salvador knew about Chivo at all. These are also not random people, they're ones that knew about Chivo. So the characteristics of these people are people that already have a cell phone with internet, but also people who are already bankerized, so people who already have a bank account, people who are relatively educated, people who are relatively young. And so if you're thinking of the motivations that the government had at the beginning of increasing financial inclusion, it seems like the people that you really like to reach were the ones that didn't even know about the app. Yeah. Of the people who did know about the app, 
how many of them or what percentage of them ended up using it to do something? Out of the people who knew about the app, about 48% tried to download the app. So about half of those people tried to download the app. Again, when we see who are these people, they are not random people. They are the ones that are like more likely to have a bank account, more likely to have more education, cell phone with internet. Men, in general, men had more take-up than women. We start like getting a population that's every time more selected. So did people actually use it to pay their taxes? No. So when we look at taxes and remittances, which again, we're kind of in the part of the discourse of why this was going to be successful, the share of people that are using Chivo Wallet to pay for taxes, that are using Chivo Wallet to receive remittances is extremely small. So about 5% of people are paying their taxes with Chivo and only 3% of people are receiving remittances in Bitcoin. About 8% of people are receiving remittances in dollars. Remember, Chivo Wallet can be used for transactions in Bitcoin and in dollars. Always usage is much lower in Bitcoin than in dollars. Even though overall it's low, it's going to be even lower if we're thinking about Bitcoin in particular. So what are some of the motivations that you heard about when you asked people about Bitcoin and this app? Well, the main reason to download the app, not surprisingly, was the very large bonus that you could get just because of downloading it. Most people stopped using the app after spending the $30 bonus. The ones that continued using the app were the ones that were more likely to have been used in cryptocurrency even before this program was launched. And so again, if we're thinking of financial inclusion and changing people's behavior towards this new method of payment, the program did not seem that successful. Why is it that people did not download Chivo or use Bitcoin? Overwhelmingly, the answers point to lack of trust, concerns with privacy, and a lack of understanding. So a lot of people didn't really know what Bitcoin was, for example, and therefore they did not use it. In my mind, cryptocurrency is associated with privacy. Were people not understanding that or is this less private because it's through the government and, you know, it's an app run by the government? In order to download the app and get the $30 bonus, you needed to input your ID into the app. The privacy that people usually associate with cryptocurrencies was not present in this setting. Lack of privacy can really deter people from using a technology. Yeah. This is very related to another question we ask where people say, I just prefer cash. Cash is anonymous. And so that's something that at least in the context of us, how other people really, really value. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that the government is holding the Bitcoin, how does that relate to you know what we think of oh, Bitcoin is up, Bitcoin is down, people are holding it to invest and to wait to trade it off. Like, is all of that volatility now in the hands of the government and the people that are using the wallets don't have to worry about it? So like the government is actually not holding a lot in Bitcoin, at least according to the data that we have from the blockchain. In that sense, the government doesn't seem to be extremely exposed to what is happening to the prices in Bitcoin. If you look at the market as a whole, at, at the whole blockchain, whenever the price of Bitcoin goes up, the volume transacted is going to go up and vice versa. If the price goes down, the volume goes down. So like there's this response, this interaction between volume and price. Mm -hmm. This is how you would expect a market like this one to work. However, in Chivo, if you look only at Chivo, 
there is no relationship whatsoever between changes in volume and changes in prices. This indicates that uh, activity in Chivo Wild is mostly driven by idiosyncratic features of El Salvador, like how much is being deposited at a particular moment in time because of the needs of the country at that moment, but it's not driven by Bitcoin prices. So we don't see evidence of the government kind of speculating or exposing itself in terms of the Bitcoin price. Okay. The effect of the Bitcoin market doesn't seem to have a role to play here in this app. So going back to the, you know, the main result here, which is this was not very well taken up. Since 2021, when this was adopted in El Salvador, a couple other countries have decided to start accepting cryptocurrency as legal tender. You know, are we seeing the same trends in those places? So at least through the lens of our results, we have some extrapolations that we can do. And so, for example, in the Central African Republic, that was the second country to make Bitcoin legal tender. To the best of our knowledge, there's not a study that is similar to ours to know exactly what happened there. But we would expect that because the Central African Republic is more bankerized than El Salvador, we would see a higher share of adopters than we saw in El Salvador. Now, it's also good to mention that the Central African Republic is similar to El Salvador in that the alternative to crypto is also a very stable currency. It is the franc. And so if we had a country like the Central African Republic, but that had a currency that was unstable, let's call that country Argentina, because one of the co-authors of this paper is Argentinian. In that case, there would be a potentially an even larger incentive to adopt because you're not comparing Bitcoin to a super stable currency. You're comparing Bitcoin to an unstable currency as well. What's your main takeaway from the study now that you've kind of looked across all these different questions you had about using Bitcoin as legal tender in El Salvador? So the government provided this so-called like big push in order to incentivize Bitcoin, providing conditions that were much better than you would find in an environment that had no intervention. Regardless, Bitcoin usage remains quite low. Kind of to tie this up with how we started, Bitcoin is not being used as a medium of exchange. So we see it being transacted a little bit, but mostly by a very selected group of people. And so it was not successful in promoting financial inclusions. Regardless, there are lessons to be learned for El Salvador, but also for other countries that might want to make Bitcoin legal tender and for countries that are attempting to implement central bank digital currencies. So we document that trust and privacy play a key role. We document that the cost of adoption seems to be quite large, not even a very large subsidy convinced a large share of people to adopt. And these are lessons that could apply to other sets. Great. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you. Diana Van Patten is a professor of economics in the Yale School of Management. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on a podcast app, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Megan Tuck at Podigy. Special thanks to Zach Savitsky for all his hard work on the Majorana segment. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? 
Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.